Hello and welcome to the Talkie Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today we'll be discussing the road to Indonesia's April 2019 legislative and presidential elections. Early in August, it was confirmed that incumbent President Joko Widodo will face the same rival for the presidency as he did in 2014, in former General Prabowo Subianto, albeit both will have new running mates. But although the contenders are the same, much has changed in the political landscape over the past five years. For one thing, Jokowi is no longer an unknown new entrant to national politics. He will enter 2019 with a five-year track record to defend. We also, of course, continue to see the reverberation through the political system of the massive Islamist mobilisation in 2016 against then-Jakarta Governor Ahok. Moreover, 2019 will be the first time that the legislative and presidential elections will be held on the same day, 17 April, owing to a constitutional court decision ordering that these elections no longer be held several months apart. To discuss the electoral landscape nine months out from the polls, I'm joined today by one of the foremost observers of Indonesian politics in Markus Mietzner, Associate Professor in the ANU's Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs and currently a visiting fellow at Kyoto University. Markus, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And could I start by asking you, in Indonesia, we see presidential candidates nominated by coalitions of parties controlling at least 20% of the seats in the national legislature or having obtained 25% of valid votes in the preceding general election. So mathematically, you know, that would allow for three to a maximum, say, of five candidates. But in reality, both in 2014 and again this time, we see only two candidates. Why is that the case? Well, when this was first done in 2004 and then in 2009, again, we had more candidates available. There were more candidates who believed they had a chance. But, you know, over time, candidates also learn. You know, they know it's a very expensive enterprise to enter the elections. Uh, a lot of capital needs to be mobilized. A lot of political deals need to be cut. So those candidates that in 2004 and 2009 still believe, you know, they would have a chance, they no longer run. So it's now really only about those candidates that, according to the polls, have a realistic chance of winning. I guess the interesting point there is if we go back even a few months ago in talking to the political classes in Jakarta, uh, there was a lot of talk that Prabowo Subianto really didn't look like a viable candidate this time around and that as a result he may settle for a vice presidential ticket with Jokowi if he could obtain it or even that his party might turn to someone like Gatot Namantio, the former commander of the armed forces who'd gained increased prominence through the anti-Ahok protests. Why is it that a few months on we've in fact seen the worm turn back to Prabowo as a candidate? Well, first of all, there, there were indeed these negotiations with Jokowi about running as his vice presidential candidate, and Prabowo was interested in that, but he demanded uh, seven ministries in return, which is something that Jokowi's side wasn't able uh, or willing to concede. So those negotiations broke down very early on, about six months ago. You know, so, but clearly, Prabowo is thinking in terms of what can I gain from this 
possibly last election that I'm running in. So the offer of the vice presidency to top off you know, his political career with a dignified end, that was something he was interested in. But again, that didn't happen. The second thing that I believe has changed in, in, in that regard is that a lot of people started looking back at 2014 and looked at the numbers in the same way they do now. At the time, Jokowi was well ahead in the polls. You know, he was at, at one point, it was 62 to 28. And once the campaign started, Bobo is a very good campaigner. He's uh, very passionate. He's able to move a crowd. Jokowi isn't really. So the, the gap between the two melted away very, very soon. So up until the point where, you know, in 2014, Pabo was arguably ahead by uh, one percentage point just two or three weeks before the election. So we are in a similar situation now. So the numbers look similar to what they were in 2014. And I think there is a sense within the Pabo camp that at least they can, again, close the gap pretty soon. And I think they have all reason to believe that that gap will indeed close pretty soon. As I mentioned at the outset, we've also had the question of the vice presidential running mates, as in Indonesia, right. the president has to run as a pair with a vice president. Yeah. And uh, both the Jokowi and Prabowo camps really left it to pretty much the last possible moment before they had to register with the Electoral Commission to reveal who that running mate would be. On Jokowi's side, you saw the 11th hour switch forced upon him by his party backers from former Constitutional Court Chief Justice Mahfoud MD to the conservative Muslim cleric Maruf Amin, whereas Prabowo is running with the former Jakarta vice governor, uh, one of the richest Pribumi businessmen in the country, Sandiaga Uno. Can I ask you, what role do you see these VPs playing for each ticket? Are they particularly important in the electoral outcome? First of all, they do play a role in very close electoral contests, and I think we can agree that this is uh, one of them. So you have to look at, you know, political considerations, geographical considerations. You know, both main candidates are from Java, so, you know, from the heartland of Java, so they would have to make sure that they get votes from outside of that Javanese heartland as well. So Maruf Amin is from Banten, West Java, while Santiago Uno is from Sumatra. So it follows a long-standing pattern of Indonesian politics that you try to maximize your vote geographically, ethnically, politically, religiously as well. Now, in, in very uncompetitive contests, like in 2009, for instance, when Yudhiyono was so way ahead in the opinion polls that it didn't matter, then the vice presidential candidate is not, not really relevant. And so uh, SPY, Yudhiyono, he, at the time he chose a bureaucrat, Budiono, the former governor of Bank Indonesia, as his running mate, and that, that was fine. Now, I mean, for Jokowi, whether it had been Mahfoud, Day, or in fact Maruf Amin that he'd ended up with, I think it's fair to say one of the functions of that candidate with solid Islamic credentials from Naratul Ulama, the largest Islamic org in the country, would be to insulate Jokowi against the sorts of attacks on his credentials as a, as a Muslim that we saw in 2014 in the campaign period there, and the large mobilisation that 
we saw against the Jakarta governor Ahok in 2016-2017. And you've put out some really interesting research recently with Burhanuddin Mutadi going through survey data around the the attitudes of particularly hardline Muslims in Indonesia and arguing, as far as I understand, that there's a significant constituency who don't feel accommodated by Islamic parties, switch their vote from election to election or, or don't vote at all, but who overwhelmingly voted for Prabowo in 2014. With Maruf Amin on board, does this present the opportunity to Jokowi to gain the vote of, of that constituency or to the Islamic political parties in his coalition to, to get their vote? Yes, in the, the limited number of polls that we already have since the nomination suggests exactly that. There's been one poll out that shows that now actually Bobowo is leading among the minority vote. You know, the minority vote was always going 90 to 95% to Jokowi. Now, in fact, Bobowo is ahead among non-Muslim voters. On the other hand, of course, and that's what it's exactly what Jokowi and his staff had in mind, of course, is that Jokowi is breaking into the conservative Muslim vote, which numerically is, of course, much larger. So at the end, on balance, he gets a net gain from, from that. But yes, the appointment of Maruf Amin has really messed up sort of the boundaries, the ideological boundaries that we so far had between Jokowi and Pabowo. In the past, and that was part of the research I've done with Buhanuddin Muhtadi as well, we could clearly show in the past that pluralist voters were going for Jokowi and the Islamist voters were going for Pabowo. This is now in question. Now, we have to wait for... Uh, more uh, survey data on this. Okay, no, that's that's fascinating because I guess if we turn to Prabowo's running mate, Santiago Uno, I mean, apart from presumably bringing a great deal of money to the table as a rich businessman, in being a Pribumi businessman, that presumably frees up Prabowo to run the type of xenophobic insinuations that capital is, is leaking overseas, potentially to Chinese business people conflating Chinese people and Chinese Indonesians. Do you still expect that sort of campaign to emerge from Prabowo and, and might that drive the, the minority vote back into Jokowi's camp over time? Yes, I, I mean, what he's less likely to do is, of course, attacking Jokowi on the religious front, which we should also remind ourselves has always been a weak side of Prabowo in the first place. He personally is not devout, he's not pious, he would say about himself that he's not a very strong Muslim in terms of being able to recite the Quran and, and so on. But he had his henchmen, of course, on the ground attacking Jokowi on, on the religious side. Now, that is now much more difficult with Maruf Amin being solidly in Jokowi's camp. But what he can do is, of course, playing the anti-Chinese card much more heavily than he already did in, in the past. And as you suggest, so that's more of a sort of chauvinist, nationalist topic rather than a, a religious one. Jokowi selling out Indonesia to the Chinese, allegedly this big infiltration of Indonesia by Chinese foreign workers, all the big infrastructure projects being uh, financed by China, and, and, and. This is what we can expect much more 
to be in the center of the discussion than that religious point. Yeah, and I mean, when you when you say that you expect there's considerable scope for Prabowo to once again close the gap on Jokowi from around that, you know, I think I saw him polling earlier this year before the VP candidates were announced, it was, what, roughly 62 Jokowi, 28 Prabowo, 10 undecided. Yeah. Um, is it that kind of anti-Chinese line that you see as having the most potential for Prabowo to, to bring the vote tallies closer together? Um, there's all kinds of things that actually can work against Jokowi. I mean, a lot of people, of course, say he has the incumbency advantage, and that's certainly true in terms of money and so on. But incumbency also means he has to defend his record and the comparison of that record with what he promised in 2014. And I'm sure he will be constantly reminded on the campaign track that he promised 7% growth. Indonesia has struggled to get five throughout the Jokowi presidency. We now see uh, uncertainty on the horizon in terms of the economy as well, with Turkey, Argentina, and so on, emerging markets being in crisis. And it's only, you know, the rupiah is already being affected by this. A major crisis in this regard could completely derail Jokowi's re-election campaign. But even if you look at the numbers now, I think one poll I've seen yesterday was about 53 to 35, which sounds pretty realistic for where we are at the moment. So 53 for Jokowi and 35 for Pabowo. Now, if that's the starting position for the campaign for Pabowo, I think he's in pretty good shape given that, again, he is a very effective campaigner. Jokowi, again, with the trouble of having to explain why he didn't achieve all of his promises of 2014, him being a very lackluster campaigner, I think we will see that gap tightening. Uh, and, of course, Bobo will rerun a lot of the themes that he had presented in 2014, just with a much more nationalist, chauvinistic, racially charged tone rather than a religious one. Sure, sure. Now, that 53-35, is that a poll conducted after the VPs had been Yeah, announced? yeah, just yeah. recently. So they, I think there were only two polls that came out from relatively credible institute after the nomination. So uh, this is one that was published, I think, two or three days ago. Before we move on to exactly what the Jokowi campaign might look like, uh, just to dwell on Prabowo for a second, what else does Santiago Uno bring to the table for his camp? I mean, was he a choice that was oriented to winning the presidential election or one that was more about trying to maximise Prabowo's party's Garindra's vote by not running with a, a running mate from one of the other coalition parties in his camp. Yeah, this is where these complexities come in that you mentioned at the beginning. Now that the elections are being held on the same day, um, so parliamentary elections and presidential elections, there are all kinds of new dynamics at play. And one is that all parties wanted to have a candidate in the presidential race in order to maximize their parliamentary vote. Now, in the Pabovo case, that meant that the National Mandate Party, PAN, and the Prosperous Justice Party, PKS, an Islamic party, who are Pabovo's partners, they wanted their own chairpersons or senior representatives of their parties to run with Pabovo. 
But of course, there was a stalemate in that regard because they couldn't agree. And at the end, Pobo said, well, if you can't agree among yourselves, then why don't we just go with Santiago Uno? He has money, he's young, he's attractive, you know, he's from Sumatra, so he covers the base there. And so at the end, the parties decided that it would be better to have a full Garindra ticket rather than giving another rival party on the same ticket the chance to have this coattail effect. You know, the coattail effect means that you know you get a higher parliamentary vote if one of your representatives is also in the presidential race. So this was essentially about denying other parties that benefit rather than getting the benefit themselves. Right? We should also add, of course, that in that coalition that Pabowo built, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono's party, Partei Democrat, is also an affiliated member of that. The former president, Yudhoyono, had hoped that his son, Agus, would be appointed the vice presidential candidate by Pabowo. But again, because of the objections of the other parties, that didn't happen because they feared the coattail effect for Yudhoyono's party and the possible establishment of a Yudhoyono dynasty. So all of these dynamics came together. And at the end, Pabowo said, listen, guys, if you don't have a candidate that you can agree on, here's mine. And if you have no other choice, then you better shut up, basically. In that situation where the other parties in Prabowo's coalition, PAN, PKS and, and Democrat, don't have, I guess, a figurehead, how do you see this having the legislative and presidential elections on the same day playing out for them? Will those parties make Prabowo and Sandy a, a prominent part of their campaign? Or will there basically be two election campaigns just superimposed on top of each other, but happening largely separately? Well, we don't know that. It's one of these uh, interesting things about this new electoral format. Yeah, I've been wondering about this and I've been discussing this with colleagues for a long time, how this will work in practice. Uh, and that's not only about Babowo, but of course, Jokowi is affected in, in the same way. Will Jokowi, for instance, once he campaigns, will he get up a stage and then do what? Just campaign for himself or also make recommendations as to a parliamentary vote? As uh, probably your listeners know, he is a formal member of PDIP, the party chaired by former President Megawati Sukarno Putri. So will he make a recommendation to vote for PDIP? Or will he say, look, I can't do this. I'm the head of a presidential coalition, so I have to treat all my coalition partners equally. That's one of the big questions that will play out in the details. And that's why the position of the campaign chairman is so disputed within the Jokowi camp. Up until now, we don't have a campaign chairman, partly because of these kinds uh, of questions. Who will call the shots in this regard? You know, what exactly... Jokowi is campaigning for and for whom. And on the other side, Pabowo faces the same problem. So will he call on people to vote for Garindra or will he say, look, here are my other coalition partners, please take them into account as well. We, we're entering uncharted territory here and I myself am very interested uh, to observe how this will play out. 
staying on that point, one of the things we saw in 2014, where the legislative elections were in April and then the presidential election in July, was that, you know, as you say, nominally, Jokowi's party, PDIP, really didn't mobilise with full enthusiasm behind his presidential election campaign. Do you think he can expect firmer support from PDIP this time around? Not necessarily. In in most cases, you know, it's not a deliberate strategy of obstruction. It's mostly that party politicians are primarily interested in themselves, and that is winning their own seats, right? So if a PDIP cadre on the ground runs for a district parliament or a provincial parliament or some running for national parliament. Now, if they run these campaigns, then that is what they're interested in. That's what they put their money into. You know, they're not going to spend their own private capital. And most campaigns in Indonesia are self-funded. They're not going to sell their house, sell their car to make Jokowi president. They're going to do that only to secure their own seats. So if, of course, you know, the candidate is popular, they're trying to latch on to the presidential candidate to increase their own vote rather than the other way around. And Jokowi knows that from 2014. That's why he is reactivating the Relawan, the volunteer network on the ground, because that's much more reliable than the party network. So no, I think a candidate who relies only on party networks in presidential elections is lost. You mentioned Jokowi was a particularly poor campaigner in 2014. Do you expect any improvement this time around? Not really. I mean, I think there are, in fact, additional risk for him. I mean, the risk in 2014 was the amateurish way of how the campaign was uh, run. You know, he was always late. He didn't really have a message. If he was given a message, he wouldn't stay on it. But that campaign had a certain charm to it as well, because it underlined the point that he was an outsider, that he was not part of this polished political establishment and so on. This time, I think there are a number of risks related to increasing complacency that you know, he believes that he has done enough to deserve a second term, that he doesn't have to fight in the same way as in 2014. There's also the risk that you know this will be too polished a campaign, too much reliant on party politicians and bureaucrats and oligarchic hacks who will be in his campaign team and that he loses that initial charm of the maverick and the outsider that he had in 2014. In terms of becoming a better public speaker, a better campaigner, I haven't seen that happening in the last four years as as president, he's still pretty underwhelming whenever he is put in front of a crowd. We've seen Jokowi didn't get his choice of vice presidential running mate. When it comes to the main themes of his campaign, will we expect him to have more autonomy in setting those or are his political party backers also going to have a lot to say about that? Yeah, I mean, this sort of relates to the more general topic. Do policy and general programmatic points do play a role at all in Indonesian elections, especially now that the major 
ideological divide is sort of mixed up with the choice of Marav Amin. So even that guide that we had in terms of dividing the political camps is gone. In terms of the policies, I mean, there's very little any of these candidates disagree on. You know, there's a large agreement among the political parties that the Indonesian market needs to be protected, you know, that some form of isolationism and protectionism is needed in order to protect Indonesian farmers. There's widespread agreement that imports uh, are bad, that they need to be limited, and so on. So foreign policy, there's very little in terms of a dividing line there. So I don't see a big programmatic point dividing the two campaigns in the upcoming presidential race. You know, it will be about Jokowi's emphasis on building infrastructure and how well he has done with that. He will, of course, say that poverty has declined under his rule as well. And there will be some discussion about how valid these numbers are. But this is largely what the campaign will be be about at the surface, right? So this will be the official campaign in the debates, in the media, in the official discussions on television and so on. Then, of course, there will be sort of clandestine debate uh, led by both camps' henchmen on the ground, and that will be a much dirtier campaign, reverting to some of the issues that we mentioned before, selling out of Indonesia to China and so on. But the official campaign will be rather bland, I suspect. And I guess on that unofficial campaign that gets called black campaigning in Indonesia, I guess the general feeling in 2014 was that Jokowi was not very effective in countering the rumours that he had a Chinese Indonesian father, that he wasn't a real Muslim, and so on and so forth. Um, Do you expect him to be better prepared or, or do things differently this time around? Well, he was, in fact, quite effective at the end. I mean, there was this time where his numbers were really shaky and Baboa was getting ahead, but he then had NU Natatal Ulama activists on the ground, especially in East Java, running a quite effective campaign, in fact, of informing Muslims in the Islamic boarding schools that these rumors simply weren't true. What they found more difficult was the much more devout, much more conservative areas, also where NU isn't that strong, like West Java. Now, for that, they now have Maruf Amin, who is from that area, has great influence there, and that will be his main task. So, yes, so if it's about addressing potential religious attacks on Jokowi in the areas like Banten and, and, and West Java, they are, would expect a much more effective campaign, largely because Marav Amin is there. Now, we should uh, recall, of course, that Jokowi lost West Java by a 40-60 margin. Now, I would expect that to shift pretty significantly this time in his favor. Okay, and with such a large population, obviously, that's a, that's a Yes, that's it's a, a fourth point. of the population. Yeah, we often forget that a fourth of the voting population lives in West Java. So this is a very important area for him to win. Now, if we assume for a second that Jokowi does win, do you expect to see a different style of presidency from him in his second term? No, not at all. And yeah, there's no precedence for that in the past either. I remember very 
strongly the discussions about a second Yudhiyono term. There was a lot about that he now finally would get rid of all the constraints, uh, throw off the shackles of his coalition partners and be the president that everyone hoped he could be. The opposite, of course, happened. In his second term, he became even more conservative, more self-indulgent, more arrogant, more isolationist in the way he dealt with the public. You know, there was hardly any doorstops interviews anymore. You know, he became very regal in the way he ran office. And I would expect something similar to happen with Jacoby in his second term. He already has a streak of self-indulgence. You know, he believes and he says that occasionally that he's never lost an election, you know, that he and knows how to win elections, that in fact he's invincible. If he wins this one as well, this will just strengthen that sense of indispensability and invincibility that he already has built up over time. So no, I, I don't expect, and I think it would be naive to expect a new reformist impulse or something like that from his second term. In fact, I think all signs are pointing to a more conservative political direction under any of the presidential winners, right? And whether it's Jacobi or whether it's Pobowo, Indonesia is becoming politically, ideologically more conservative. I mean, with that sort of societal change, you characterized Yudiono, who you've mentioned in that answer, as a moderating president who sought to, I guess, accommodate the different conflicting sections of Indonesian society. Uh, I mean, how would you characterize Jokowi's own response to those sorts of social conflicts or trends of conservatism within Indonesian society? Yeah, it's very similar. And again, that's ironic because, again, remember how in 2014 he presented himself as the anti-Yudhiyono. You know, I think it's fair to say that in 2014, after 10 years of Yudhiyono rule, Indonesian voters were pretty bored by him, wanted something new, and that's what Jokowi wanted to offer. But now, the way he's managing his presidential coalitions, the way he's responding to religious conservatism, and that is by adopting it rather than arguing with it, is very similar to the way Yudhiyono has done it. The only difference being that Yudhiyono has done it from the very beginning. Jokowi has only done it in a very strong way since the events surrounding Ahok in late 2016 and early 2017. So he felt forced to do it, while Yudhiyono had sort of done it in an anticipatory way from the very beginning. But the way they deal with these groups now, integrating them into into their regimes is now indeed very similar. Okay, and will Maruf Amin only drive that process even further? Of course. I mean, it, we will have to watch exactly what role he plays. And we should also remember again you know, that Maruf Amin wasn't the candidate Jokowi wanted. There was a reason he wanted Mahfoud, because Mahfoud had a very clean image, had an agenda of law and corruption reform and so on, and he would have brought that into the presidential administration. Now you have somebody who brings an entirely different agenda into into the presidential palace, and that is a conservative, conservative agenda against homosexuality, against inter 
uh, religious marriages against this, against that. So it will be a very contrarian, conservative, ideologically hardline vice president. And so we will have to watch what exactly he is allowed to do. Uh, of course, there's the scenario that Jokowi network within the palace will try to isolate him, make him sort of a symbol of the administration, send him off to opening projects and so on, and represent the presidential office in Islamic boarding schools and its ceremonies and so on. I'm sure that's what they plan. But, you know, you never know whether Maruf Amin is prepared to swallow that. Now, in 2014, you were quite vocal in highlighting the dangers to Indonesian democracy of a Prabowo win, canvassing his rhetoric, really, that he intended to return to the pre-democratic constitution, had openly opposed direct elections during the campaign. Would you expect something similar if Prabowo were to win in 2019? Well, I mean, the past doesn't change. Uh, The past uh, of Prabowo means that he was a proven human rights violator dismissed from the military for involuntary disappearances of activists and so on. The list is very long and we don't have to go go into that. So that doesn't change. And of course, now the big code word, the big slogan of the Prabowo campaign is the new Prabowo. Right? So this is what you see now everywhere. The softer, more friendlier, you know, the the Pabowo who listens, the Pabowo who is no longer sort of the madman who becomes angry at everyone who is uh, challenging him. So that's what they're trying to sell. Right? They're trying to put a clear distance between the image of the authoritarian, very aggressive Pabowo who made no secret out of the fact that he was an admirer of dictators around the world and the new candidate of 2019, right? So that's what they're trying to do. What I would expect now, and I would be very interested in that as well, what I would expect the media to do is really chase him very hard on those issues. You know, if you were to become president, what is your plan for Indonesia's political system? As you may recall, in 2014, he made this off-the-cuff remark that direct elections are a Western idea and they're not in line with Indonesian political thought and so on. So I would like to know more. And the media, again, should chase him much more on that than simply reporting his speeches. But asking, if you are president, would you abolish elections? Would you not only abolish local elections, which he... Again, important to recall that when he had a majority in parliament, that's what he did. Right after the elections in 2014, he put together a coalition of parties and abolished direct elections for governors and district heads. Now, my question to him would be, are you going to repeat that? And are you planning to return Indonesia to the pre-democratic constitution in which the president is no longer directly elected by the people. Now, if we look at his program, there are suggestions that this is exactly what he is trying to do by saying he wants to go back to the initial version of the 1945 constitution. So I'm willing to keep an open mind on his plans. If he has changed his plans, he should let us know. If he says, no, you know, I'm going to protect, I'm going to safeguard Indonesian democracy, then we would like to know exactly what that means. 
but the indications at the moment are that he's still planning, in essence, a return to what we under Suharto call the Panchasila democracy, right? a much more controlled democracy, a much more elite-dominated democracy than it is already now. And I mean, this idea of the new Prabowo with a softer image, is this a sign that the out-and-out strongman image doesn't resonate in Indonesia the way it seems to have, for example, in the Philippines? Well, it certainly didn't make him win in 2014, right? I mean, he came close, the end result was 53-47, so he needs to turn around about 7 or 8% of the electorate in order to have a really strong shot at the presidency. And yes, there are people, especially among women, he did very poorly among women, where a, a softer approach is more appreciated. Now, clearly, he has to change something. Right? Mm. That's the lesson from 2014. The problem for him is now he doesn't know exactly what he needs to change. Right? Initially, I think there was this idea that he needs to move further to the right, further accommodating the religious, conservative, Islamist side of Indonesian politics. Now, that has been somewhat sort of neutralized by the appointment of Maruf Amin by Jokowi. So now he has to scramble together a new strategy. Is that new strategy to be a more pluralist Bobo, somebody who is more pluralist even than Jokowi with Maruf Amin uh, on his side? So uh, I think he will have to sit together a lot with his campaign team over the next few months to figure out where exactly they're going to attack, how they're going to portray him, and who exactly they're going to target. Right? So uh, one of the problems he's had in 2014 was, for instance, that he targeted poor voters, as the classic populists would do. But then you look at who actually voted for him. It was the higher educated, the high income voters, the urban electoral that, that actually voted for him. Even with Jokowi in power, you've written about this process of democratic deconsolidation in Indonesia where democracy remains, but respect for democratic values has been diminished. Would the contrast be as stark as they might have been in 2014 between a Prabowo-led Panchasila democracy and a continuation of the Jokowi administration in this democratic deconsolidation? No, clearly not. And I I expect democratic deconsolidation to continue under either president. So it it would continue under Jokowi, a slow but measurable decline of democratic quality with all what they have in store in terms of law changes to the criminal code, criminalizing homosexuality and so on. So if all of that, what they currently are planning is going ahead with the help of Maruf Amin, then yes, we will see a very clear push further towards democratic deconsolidation. With Babowo, I see the risk even higher. Again, we don't even know what exactly he's planning to do with the formal setup of democracy. I think with Jokowi, he wants to play within the existing democratic framework leave elections in place, but pander to the conservatives within that existing context. With Bobovo, again, we don't know what his end game is. It's possible that he could say, if he gets a majority together as president, let's just return to the 1945 constitution, which, as we all know, 
was a heaven sent for autocratic presidents like Sukarno and Suharto. So, so neither of the two options, neither Jokowi nor Popovo, looked very good for democratic consolidation. I think deconsolidation will continue under either of these two presidents. But with Popovo, the risk for democratic reversal, so not only democratic consolidation, but a full reversal back to authoritarianism is slightly higher. I mean, conversely, what about a Prabowo loss? What would that mean for his party, Garindra? Would that spell the end for Garindra as a political force? Or can the party regenerate even without him at the at the helm as a presidential candidate? Yeah, I mean, most people would agree, of course, given his age, that this is his last shot at the, at the presidency. And I personally don't believe he ever cared much about the party. The party was always just a vehicle for him for a presidential run. It was very clear during the five years between elections, he showed very little interest in party building, hardly showed up to any of the events and and so on, spent most of his time at his ranch outside of Jakarta. And then a year before an election, he rediscovers his interest in the party. So if he loses again this time, I would expect that he basically will put up the party for auction. I mean, he's, you know, he has spent some money on building the network and so on. So this is a, a functioning network. There will be a network of representatives around the archipelago. There will be lots of parliamentarians at the district, uh, provincial and national level. So that party is worth something. So he will not simply drop it. But I would expect him to sell the party, literally, to somebody who is interested in using it for his or her own presidential run in in the future. Now, it could be that Santiago is that person who says he's young enough, has money, and so on, and then carry on the flag and target 2024 as a presidential campaign. So that's the most likely future, that Bobo will fade off in the background, no longer put his own money into the party, but that the party itself will be, like Hanura was, sold off to somebody who wants to use it for his or her own interests. And finally, I mean, you were on the record well in advance of the 2014 election, predicting that you felt Jokowi would win. Would you care to make a similar prediction for how 2019 will turn out and why? I would be more reluctant this time around because of the uncertainties that I mentioned earlier. There is the potential for a major economic crisis if Turkey is going down the drain. Again, we have to see what's happening to Argentina as well. And if that spreads into an emerging markets crisis, then all bets are off for Jacoby. Then he doesn't go into the campaign only explaining why he hasn't met the 7% growth target and only delivered five, then he would have to explain why under his watch the economy experienced a contraction, for instance. Right? So, and that would make his position really, really difficult. Also, the risk that I mentioned earlier, I, I see the problem of complacency. I think that you know, his position isn't as strong as Yudhoyono's was in 2009. If we now take the numbers that I mentioned earlier, 53, 235, I don't think that's a number he should be satisfied with. Uh, and I know from uh, some of his people in his office that they're not satisfied with these numbers, given that, in fact, he has been campaigning for the last 
four years. I mean, he's touring the country, he's handing out health insurance cards, he's handing out land certificates uh, wherever he goes. And all he gets out of these four years campaign as an incumbent with a 70% approval rating is a 53% electability rating. That's not a very strong result. Right? So putting on top all of what we discussed earlier, that during the campaign, the more Pabobo comes into the spotlight, the better he will do in the polls. All of that, put all of that together, I think we are in for an interesting campaign. Of course, the advantage at the moment, you look at the number, you look at the incumbency, is with Jacoby, but we've seen it all before, how he's squandered the big lead in the past. And I'm not going to you know, say here that there's no risk of him doing that again. Sure, sure. Well, it'll be fascinating to see how it turns out. And it's been fascinating to speak to you today, Marcus. Thanks so much for coming on Talk Indonesia and sharing your insights with us. Thanks as well. Thank you. That was Associate Professor Marcus Mietzner from the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University. He's also currently a visiting fellow at Kyoto University. Talk Indonesia, as always, is available in its entirety via the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, via iTunes, or wherever you access your podcasts. We'll see you again on the 13th of September with my co-host, Dr. Gemma Purdy. Until then, this has been the Talk Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.